0: Well, we are, we're in a series, our Colossian series, and uh, I was thinking about the Roman Empire, actually, and the Roman Empire is this amazing thing. If you studied the Roman Empire, and if you, maybe it's grade seven, grade eight, I don't know, around then, and then I know in history there's, you study these things, but the Roman Empire is this amazing thing. And if you've studied it or you've read on it, you'll know that it was an amazing thing. It lasted for 507 years. And uh, the people who lived in it thought it would last forever because it was such an amazing and powerful thing. The Roman Empire brought all sorts of things, benefits to the people living in it. They brought civilization. Um, they built roads. That was one of the things the Roman Empire was known for. The soldiers, wherever they went, they would build a road. And so the roads brought trade and commerce. You could travel back and forth to different places a lot more easily than you could before. There was um, sewers that they built and they developed concrete so that buildings would last longer and be better quality. Um, They had this idea of justice that they brought. So law and order came with the Roman Empire. There was democracy. The military brought a security and a safety, a peace to the places that they pacified, obviously, after the war of pacification. And then there was peace. That's what the Roman Empire brought. And it was 5 million kilometers squared. Like, this is is a huge area that experienced this. And if you've read about Julius Caesar, you'll know Julius Caesar was an amazing guy too. And he's the one who kind of brought about the empire of the Roman Empire. And, and it was his life. He's a brilliant military genius. He's a, a visionary leader. His, um, his leadership qualities to be able to move his nation forward into becoming an empire. It's an amazing story. It's not actually a big surprise that when he died, they worshiped him as a deity, as a God, because of his life. Paul is Roman. Paul is Roman. The Colossians live in the Roman Empire. They're a part of it. And so when we read, when we look at this letter to the struggling believers in the church in Colossae, we should envision their world. This was their world, a known kingdom or a known world under occupation. It was an empire with the emperor's claiming deity. It was a kingdom that was unrivaled anywhere ever. Ever. There was this heavenly pantheon of gods you could choose from. There was a throne that held things together. There was a power that united the world. There was a dominion that looked like it would never end. So when Paul puts this hymn, this song, this poem, and he writes it to the Colossians, and we're going to look at it this morning, you guys this thing he writes to them it's it would be like treason i don't know any other way to see it at least it would be revolutionary this idea that jesus is not just one more rival to the roman throne that he's not just one more conqueror or just one more kingdom that he's not just one more deity to mix and match with the all the different gods or traditions the good news that's bearing fruit around the world and in us, Paul says, is anchored to this one thing, that Jesus stands alone. That Jesus is above Rome. That Jesus is above all gods. That he is preeminent. So let's read it this morning. Let's read this section, we're in Colossians, we're in chapter 1, and uh, we are at verses uh, 15, we're going to read 15 to 20 today. This is what it says, this is what Paul writes, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. Powerful. This morning, we're going to grapple with and I hope come to truly believe that Jesus is fully God, visible, first over everything there is first over everything there is. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder when I'm reading through, say, Acts or something, the story of the early church, I kind of wonder, like, what songs did they sing? Or, you know, what was their... What was their go-to? What was their hit song? You know, did they have like a Hill Songs Jerusalem that like was pop pumping out the hits? Or did they have like a Bethel Antioch that was like, oh, yeah, let's, we want to go visit that place because, you know, they write really good music or like, you know, what, what are they singing? What, what's, what's on their heart? What, what comes out? And um, it's easier to see it in Greek. Apparently, I don't know because I don't actually speak Greek yet. Going to learn Greek at one point here. But English steals some of the poetry from this passage, or we might see it more clearly or more easily. At any rate, when we read it, we can feel like there's something a little bit different about this part. And there's a symmetry and a style that's different than the verses that come before it and the verses that come after it. And so... People looking at this, the scholars and the historian, the commentators, they look at this and they say, this is different. There's a poetry to it. There's a, almost like it sounds like it's a song that Paul is quoting, a hymn, maybe from the early church. And we can look at it and we can see there's some symmetry. We can see, depending on your translation, maybe there's some symmetry. So he is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things. He is the head. He is the beginning. There's this he is, he is, he is, he is, all these different parts. There's also a refrain that happens twice in this section. And it is in him and through him and to him. And you'll notice that it comes at the beginning. In him and through him and to him. And then it comes at the end. In him and through him and to him. And so when they're looking at this, they say, this seems like it's poetry at the least. At the best, it's a song. It's a hymn that they would have sung that he's quoting back to them. Um, it's like, as if Paul was writing to a church in Nebraska and he wrote, uh, he put in the lyrics to what a beautiful name, which we sang this morning. He could have done that and put in these lyrics that we sing that are true. And he's sending, you know, Hey, let me remind you of this song. We sing this truth here. It's beautiful. N.T. Wright says someone who writes in this way wants his or her readers to stop and think. And Paul and Timothy, as they're writing this and they put this in here, they want their readers to stop and think. And so they change the way it sounds. Put in the song. It starts with Jesus, the visible God. Jesus, the visible God. We're going to go through the different sections, so you're going to have to track with me, okay? Get your, pull your pants up. Get your pen ready. We're going we're gonna to track this song all the way through this hymn. So Jesus, the visible God. Jesus, the visible God. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, it's interesting because mostly we hear like, you know, we are made in the image of God. That's the, that's the talk from Genesis. We're made in the image of God, but it doesn't say that. You know, we are. We're made in the image of God. We are like God, but not like God. We are bearing qualities of God while being distinctly not God. That's what it means to be made in the image. We're similar but different. And we were meant to be reflections of who God is, of his character, and who he is. And we failed. We fail, we failed, and we still fail to reflect God accurately. I heard one description uh, from a speaker who said, this is sin, that we, whenever we fail to accurately reflect God, whether it's in our actions or our thoughts or what we're doing, when we fail to reflect who God is accurately, make him visible, we, we act in sin. That's a description of it. But Jesus isn't, doesn't say here he's made in the image of God. It says he is the image of God. He is a perfect reflection of the Father. He is the only one who is a perfect reflection of the Father, my kids at different points when they're little, they'll say, why can't we see God? Or they say, you know, what does God look like? And you're like, um, okay, well, do you want me to go into the theology, kids? You know, you're like, okay, why is he invisible? And you have these things. But the, the answer is we have, and we, it's in Jesus. What God looks like, God looks like Jesus. That's what God looks like. That's exactly what God looks like. That's what John 1.18 says when he writes, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. Or John 14 where Jesus himself says, if you had known me, you would have known the, my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's what Jesus says. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. What does God look like? He looks like Jesus. Exactly like Jesus. Jesus who loved. Jesus who healed. Jesus who had compassion. Jesus who was angry at injustice. Jesus who called the outcasts to come and follow him. Jesus who touched the lepers. Jesus who ate with sinners. Jesus who found a lost people. Jesus, who gave his life for our salvation. Jesus, who rose victorious from grave and from death. This is what God looks like. Like Jesus. And then it says, Jesus is first in all creation, firstborn of all creation. Now, don't be confused. When Paul says Jesus is the firstborn, he doesn't mean Jesus was born right before Genesis 1 1. Jesus was born, and then it goes into Genesis 1.1. That's not what Paul means. And we know that because he explains. He talks more about it. He says, you know, by him and through him and for him or to him, everything was made by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. And so it can't be that Jesus is like, oh, he's the first creation, and then the rest of creation, he just got to be the first thing. That's not what it means when it says firstborn. If everything was made by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus, that's saying something different. John 1, 2-3 says, Jesus, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's a powerful statement about how Jesus is God. What does it mean? What does it mean that everything was made by Jesus, for Jesus? There are some implications for us and for our world. The first one is that, that the, this is God's world. The world belongs to God. He made it. It's his. In uh, the Roman and the Greek stories of how the world came to be, so the Romans would often borrow from other stories. People, they took over, they'd be like, oh yeah, we like that story, okay, and they'd take it on. And so the Roman and the Greek story are very similar, and it, comes out of the world is made out of chaos or out of, you know, depending on the story version, there's, you know, a God who makes the world, but the world is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. It's a, it's a thing that what that's not, there's not positive things about it. And then people are made and, you know, Pandora opens the box and there's all this evil that's let loose as well. But in the story of Genesis, the world is God's handiwork. The world was made as a love song for people. It was his masterpiece that he made. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. And the physical world is God's. It belongs to him. It isn't bad. It may be broken, but it's not bad. Creation itself, it may be damaged, but it's not bad. And we talk a lot in the church about going up to heaven, right? We're taken up. I want to be taken up into glory. Can't wait to leave this place you know and we we got the mansion i got a mansion up in heaven jesus preparing a place for me i got a mansion i'm hoping it's a mansion i don't know about you i envision a mansion with a swimming pool i won't go into all the details and there's a street of gold right we picture all these things about heaven and the picture we have is us of us leaving this place to go to another better place and like we could leave the landfills and the plastic ocean behind you know like yeah i hope no one you know dynamite this place right but this, the story of salvation is not, is not dualistic. It's not, God doesn't come and save us and then rapture us up to heaven. We're not saved to go somewhere different. God comes to where we are. He comes into this world and he saves us in this world. We're saved here. Or we would, we would get raptured up. Every, every person who becomes a Christian, would they would be gone. Right? That would be weird if we were left behind. The world, though, is spoiled by sin, but God still has a plan for it. God has a redemptive plan. It still belongs to him, and he has a plan. And the second implication for us is that there is no creation that's above Jesus. And this is what, this is the song. It says, in heaven and on earth, it goes into detail. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now we know in Paul's life, maybe you'd say like, well, does that mean like Rome or does that mean like spiritual powers and thrones and authorities? And do you know what? Paul doesn't care. He doesn't have a line between spiritual powers and human ruling earthly power. To him, it's like, it's all the same. It doesn't matter. Jesus is above all of it. So you could try to figure out which one he's talking about at any given place. He's talking about all of it. Jesus is above all of it. This is so good. If you're a Christian, this is such good news. You guys look like you're still sleepy a bit. This is good news, right? Is this good news? Yes, it is. There is nothing to fear. Andrew said it this morning. We have nothing to fear. There is no adversary. There is no spiritual power. There is no principality. There is no government. There is no enemy bent on death and destruction that I need to live in fear about because I belong to Jesus, who is above all of it. You guys, Paul is writing this letter from prison. From prison. Do you know where he's in prison? Probably Rome. He's writing these words from Rome in prison his life, his church planting ministry, his future, all of it hanging on the whim of a petty emperor who thinks he's God. And Paul writes, for him and through him and to him is all the power and the glory. Jesus is first in creation and Jesus is first in all things. I love this. This is such a great, beautiful part. Do you know, one one commentary calls this passage the most important Christological passage in the whole New Testament. Like, people are saying this. This passage. You're like, awesome, we can talk about it today. This is so exciting. I'm excited. Jesus is first in all things. This is a question I I read recently. And the question I'll ask you is, what percentage of what you did yesterday was spiritual? Or maybe just like an average day. Maybe like, oh, Saturday, I don't do anything spiritual on Saturday. I mow my lawn and I sit around or like, I don't know. Maybe on an average day, we, if we looked at it and we analyzed our day, maybe we'd say, oh, I had morning Bible and prayer time. So that's spiritual, check, okay. And then I had a shower. That's earthly. unless Oh, I was, maybe I sang a worship song, so then it's spiritual. Okay, it's kind of both. Maybe uh, then I had breakfast, and that's very earthly, I commuted to work, it's earthly. Uh, I worked at my job, pretty earthly. Made some jokes around the water cooler. They were very earthly jokes. Won't tell you what they were. And then I commuted home, which is pretty earthly. Uh, I prayed over dinner, which maybe for you or for me, depending on the day, could be earthly or spiritual, depending on how much we actually prayed or we were just saying words. And then we would eat dinner, and that would be earthly. And then we would have TV time, and that would be earthly. And it would probably, the later it got, maybe get more and more earthly. I don't know, depending on what shows you're watching. And then it's bedtime. And so we'd look at our day, and we'd say, oh, yeah, not great. Like, my my spiritual earthly division, it's not a good mix here. I got to get my spiritual percentage up. The funny thing is, if we asked a Hebrew person, hey, what's your spiritual earthly percentage? They'd be like, what? Because they don't even have a word for spiritual. It's not a thing. Everything is spiritual. They would say, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? Everything is spiritual. It's not one thing or the other. It's like, oh, yeah, well, Bible time is spiritual. Like John Mark Homer writes this. He says, the cosmic gargantuan 24-7 kingdom of God cannot be shrunk down to a few hundred people singing songs in a nice building for an hour every weekend. This is our spiritual life? No. No. Where Paul writes, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together there's a, if there's a theme for this hymn, we could call it all things. And if you read it out loud, you'll be like, all things, all things. Wow. There's a lot of references to all things in five verses. There are eight references to the word all or everything. We count them eight. And it's this Greek word. The Greek word is pause, pause. And it means you guessed it. Everything. So weird, right? Everything. (laughs) That was a joke. It was a joke. Everything, Or you could translate it, the totality. The totality or all that exists. This is this word, pause. And when you hear this song and you read the passage and you reflect on the words, there's a refrain that keeps happening over and over and over. All creation, all things, all things, all things, all things. Everything, all fullness, all things. You hearing it yet? So, what things in your life don't fit the all things of Jesus? The laundry, parking spots, my health, my TV shows, my finances, my job, recess at school, my parenting, my children, my spouse, my leisure time, my Netflix, my food consumption. My depression, my fear, the dishes, my sex life, my video games, my cancer, my grief, my pride, my hopes and dreams, my disappointments, my doubt. You guys, Jesus lays claim to everything in your life. There is not a secret corner of your life that he does not lay claim to. All of it. Everything. So what does this mean? It means that Jesus is before everything. Like he's out in front of it. He's in front of it. Before it. Now, we should be clear that he's not holding cancer together. So when he says he holds all things together. But he's holding you together. And he's holding this world together. His grace oils it, and his presence sustains it, and his love enables it. He is holding it together. Jesus is first in all things. And Jesus is head of the church. He's first in the church. There was a a little boy who was watching his father, who was a pastor, writing a sermon. And uh, the little boy says, well, dad, how do you know what to say? When you're doing that, and the pastor said, Well, I just asked Jesus and he tells me. And little boy said, Well then why are you crossing so much out? You know, as you go. The problem is we we think, we might not admit it, but we we think often the pastor's the one in charge of the church, right? And don't, like don't nod or anything, you just you just keep it inside. <laughs> but you know what? Sometimes sometimes we put the pastor up on a pedestal. And, uh, we, you know, deep down, we won't say it out loud, but that's what we do. And we'll, we'll elevate them, and then we'll idolize them, and then they'll disappoint us. Should I change the pronouns? I will disappoint you. When we put, put the pastor up. The pastor is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the body. Don't forget... Paul is writing to the Colossians, and they have issues. There's stuff going on there. Remember? People were teaching. Preachers were preaching. Leaders were leading. And they were leading them in a way that was leading them into trouble. John, John writes in, in, in Third John to another church, and this is what he writes. He says, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. John's writing to the church and he's saying, you got these problems, you got this guy who's creating all these problems, and he describes them as, this guy loves to be first. That's your problem. And you know what, that's a problem in the church, when we love to be first. If the pastor loves to be first, or if the leadership loves to be first, there's a problem. We're going to have problems. They're not under the headship of Jesus you know, when I think about my own head on my body, like my physical head, I'm not confused about its importance in my body. I'm not confused that like my hands make decisions and my other hands making a different decision. Like, whoa, what's my hand doing? I don't know. Like I understand my, like my head tells it what to do and it does it. My head is important. Not confused. If you took my head off of my body, I would die. It's called decapitation. <laughs> Just in case you didn't know that. It's a thing. You die if your head is separated from your body. Because your head is important. It is the from which all everything else is flowing. That's how it works. <laughs> Jesus is the head of the body and there's a body. And the church is called to be part of this. Paul doesn't just throw in this line because he's like trying to up church attendance in Colossae. Hey, you guys should make sure you go to church. You know, church, and church, church. I'll say the word church. It's like, no. In the middle of all this old creation, a new creation, in him, through him, for him, all God's fullness, making peace, the reconciliation of all things, and Jesus getting first place, the church is part of it. The church is part of it. The church holds this crucial role in the plan of redemption. We're a part of it. We're the hands and feet. We're the fingers and toes and kneecaps. We're God made visible in us and through us. Second Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are his ambassadors bringing this message. Jesus reconciled us to be his ambassadors. We're his appeal and his body. And Jesus is first from the dead, he's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. And some commentators, they'll say this word beginning in English, they'll say, well, that's like, uh," it's a little weak almost because the actual word in Greek is such a strong word. And so beginning captures it a little bit, but there's so much more to this word. And the word is aché. And it means first place or principle or source or creative initiative or origin or the active cause Jesus is the creative initiative. Jesus is the active cause. Jesus is the origin, the source. He rose from death so that he would sit and reign unchallenged in first place. Now this word firstborn, there's firstborn of of creation and there's firstborn from the dead. You'll notice there's those two firstborns in there. And you might think, oh, yeah, Jesus is the firstborn. Okay, fine. But if you talk to Jewish people, then you ask them, who's the firstborn? They would say, we are. Israel was the firstborn. That's how they would understand that. Because in Exodus and other places in scripture, Exodus 4.22 is the example. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And then there's other references where God calls Israel his firstborn. And we know from the story, if you've read the Bible and you know some of those stories, that uh, Israel and us, in any attempt to be walking in that way, fail. We messed up in our attempts to, to do this well, to keep the law, to deserve the inheritance, to follow him wholeheartedly. We couldn't. We failed. And so when Jesus takes this name, the firstborn, he becomes Israel Israel. And he does what couldn't be done, what we couldn't do. He's answering the failure of Adam and he's meeting the requirements of the law. He's the Messiah. He is the, the glory of God visible who saves the righteousness of God. The firstborn of creation became the firstborn from the dead. Jesus initiates creation and he initiates a new creation the new covenant, this beautiful new part of the story. And Jesus is first. He's firstborn from the dead. It says in the ESV that he might be preeminent. And in different translations, you'll see different words because this is like, it's a strong and powerful statement. Preeminent or NIV, if you have that, you'll read, he might have supremacy. Or if you've got a new American standard, you'll read, he will come to have first place in everything. Now, the New American Standard is more literal, so it's more exact to the words, which sometimes can be harder to understand. And the NIV will apply sometimes so that you can understand it a little more easily. So, the NASB is actually the closest to the actual language where it says, He will come to have first place in everything. This picture of first place. Like, He's the winner. he, He got first place, He wins. That's the deal. Jesus conquered in death and resurrection so that he would be the winner. And if the the hymn had a thesis, this might be the thesis. Jesus, creation. Jesus gives his life and raises from the dead in order that he would be first. My mom used to talk about uh, when I was growing up that, you know, it's like if you imagine you have a throne in your heart. And she would say, you know, you invite Jesus to come and sit on the throne of your heart. And we do this and then, but every day you have to still invite Jesus to sit on the throne or you could sit on the throne. You can do your own thing still, even though you're a Christian. And of course, people can also have the enemy come and sit on their throne, which is crazy to me that you would want someone who's going to steal, kill and destroy your life to sit on the throne of your heart. But you could do that. Mostly, I think you and I wrestle with, am I leading my life? Am I first, or is Jesus first? And as I walk out my day-to-day life, does Jesus sit on my throne, or do I? Jesus is like, oh, I have a chair for you, Jesus. Just sit over there. You're kind of my counselor. You're just going to give me some advice sometimes if I really mess up. Who's first? Who sits on our throne? Because Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead so that he could sit on your chair next to your throne. Now, we've almost made it. Are you still with me? (laughs) This is a lot. There's a lot here, right? Okay? We're kind of racing through a little bit. Each section, there's so much here. The most important Christological passage of the New Testament. Okay? Stay with me. The last refrain, come, is a connection to that first refrain, which is in him and through him and to him. So, in him everything was made. And through him and unto him everything was made. And then, of course, if you know the story, we blew it. We messed up royally. We just trashed everything. We, We made a mess for ourselves, our own lives. We made a mess for creation, for the world. And we made a mess of our relationship with God. All those things are damaged by sin. Right? And then, this song, this hymn, ends with, In him... The fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, we were reconciled by the blood of his cross through him, God making peace, everything reconciled to him. Now, if you're like me, you might be like, okay, well, I have some questions and you would be in good company because there's lots of commentators who say this part is hard because there's some questions that come up right away. If everything is reconciled to God, we might have some questions. So here are a couple, few questions, maybe different from yours, I don't know. So here's some questions. Number one, how does Jesus' death reconcile us or everything to God? Secondly, does that mean all, does the all mean non-human creation? We often think about us, but then does this mean like everything, everything? Like My dog and cat and the grass and the trees Like, what exactly does all encompass? And then thirdly, the third question maybe we might have is, does that mean that everyone is automatically saved? Because that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? So this is a challenge with this passage that we wrestle with. And as with any passage where you're like, hmm, this sounds like it's saying this it's really important that we would look through all of the counsel of Scripture. We'd say, well, what does Paul say in other places? And what does the Bible say in all sorts of places? And then we look at, what does this mean? And so, as we look at this, we could answer these questions. Number one, how does Jesus' death reconcile everything and everyone? Well, the answer is that God took upon himself the barrier, sin, upon himself. He took your sin and my sin, and he offered to trade us our sin, he would take it and he would give to us his righteousness. So we're not, we're not just giving away our sin. We're getting something back and that's his righteousness. So we're giving our sin and we're made complete. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's good news. That is good news. Like I didn't just get rid of my sin and now I got to kind of Make it up to God because he took my sin. Look, I am righteous. I'm 100%. Boop. Just like Jesus. And now I'm going to live out of that. That's exciting. That's good news. That's what God did. And the second question is always, what about all the rest of creation? Not just people. What does it mean for them? And the answer is that sin led to the destruction of the world, of creation. And the redemption will lead to the restoration of creation. It will lead to the restoration. So part of our, our job is that we're a part of a restoration movement. We're part of a, a making things new movement. Not just like check out. Oh, wait till the rapture. It'll all work out. Romans 8.21. Eight, chapter 8 is about this. Creation groans and longs for the redemption. So this is what it says. 8.21 says, In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation's waiting. (gasps) When you experience your full freedom, everything, we are too. That's what creation says. Well, creation doesn't talk, but if it could, that's what it would say. It's longing for this, waiting for the restoration of all things. And the third question, which is, does the all mean everyone gets saved? Is it automatic? And the answer is, reconciliation is not... Automatic. We know this because Paul says it in lots of other places. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to two sixteen, Chapter 14 to, chapter, to verse 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. Paul says repeatedly, we're going to stand before God. And if you rejected God, then you yourself will be rejected. If you say no to God, God doesn't force you to come into relationship with him. And so this is the picture. We have this opportunity to respond to him. We need to respond to him. 2 Corinthians 5 also talks about this. In 17 to 19 it says this. Therefore if anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold the new has come. All this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're supposed to go tell people this. Good news. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We're supposed to go tell people, hey, did you know what? God reconciled you. He's done everything that needed to be done. It's good news. You just have to respond to him. You just have to receive it. That's good news. And there's a part we play in that as well. In him and through him and to him. There is a second part to this passage, and we're going to go into that next week just because there's so much great stuff here. And so next week will be kind of almost like part two. It's a responsive part at the end of this hymn. Jesus is fully God visible, first over everything there is. And T. Wright summarizes this passage. He says this, God, man, and the world are now to be understood in relation to Jesus. He makes the invisible God visible. He fulfills the Father's reconciling purpose on the cross. He is the Father's agent in creation and redemption. He is the truly human being. The true image of God. He's Lord of the old and new creation being in himself. The beginning of new creation. The first created being to attain the state of perfection which will one day be shared by all things in heaven and on earth. Let's pray.